Hello and welcome to People in Profit, our weekly look at the world of business and economics. I'm Charles Pellegrin. Coming up. As war rages on in Gaza, we look at how the defense sector is both benefiting from the violence and struggling to keep up. Can the villain become the hero? As the world struggles to keep its climate targets, we'll see what role capitalism can play in phasing out fossil fuels and reducing carbon emissions. And we'll head to Kenya, where black soldier flies could be the answer to high prices, out-of-control waste, and foreign dependence, at least when it comes to fertilizer. Well, around the globe, conflicts have escalated into full-blown wars, as we've seen between Israel and Hamas, or Russia and Ukraine. Others are slowly simmering, threatening to boil over, whether in the South China Sea or the Taiwan Strait. In all these cases, policymakers are racing to keep funds flowing to their defense sectors. The Biden administration, for instance, has outlined a $105 billion national security package that will lend military and humanitarian assistance to both Israel and Ukraine. Well, Brian Quinn from France 24's Business Desk joins us now. Hi, Brian. Uh, this uh, increase in violence seems to be benefiting the defense sector. Well, Charles, as we know, a war in the modern age is big business when bombs are falling arms profits are rising and as the world's number one arms exporter the u.s is especially poised to benefit the annual average for u.s government to government military sales is around 65 billion dollars by the end of september this year that had already hit 90.5 billion investors have been pouring money into u.s defense companies and funds in the week after Hamas's attack on Israel, the iShares U.S. Aerospace and Defense Exchange Traded Fund brought in $7.2 million, while Invesco's similar ETF brought in $48 million. Those funds are already up between 5 and 15 percent uh, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the industry, especially in the U.S., is uh, working hard to ramp up production. Uh, it is, Charles. Like Europe, the U.S. in recent years uh, has largely shifted its defense industrial base away from the material needed to fight large ground wars. As it bombards Gaza, Israel is seeking interceptor rockets for its Iron Dome air defense system, guided bombs and missiles, tank ammunition and artillery shells. And those Iron Dome interceptors are assembled in partnership with RTX, which was formerly Raytheon, Hellfire missiles made by Lockheed Martin. General Dynamics makes 120-millimeter tank rounds. All three of those firms saw their stock prices jump after Hamas's attack, with the S&P defense index up nearly 5%. And can you give us a sense of how defense spending globally has evolved over the years? So even before this most recent flare-up, global defense spending was rising to Cold War levels, largely due to the war in Ukraine, but also due to a perceived threat from China's growing military prowess. 2022 saw military outlays rise for the eighth straight year, hitting two and a quarter trillion dollars. The U.S. remains by far the world's largest defense spender. Its $877 billion last year represents 39% of the world's total. The $19.2 billion that it sent in military aid to Ukraine, amounting to just 2.3% of its total defense budget. Now, at the end of World War II, outgoing U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower warned of the growth of the U.S. military-industrial complex. Similarly, the current rising trend of global arms sales is sparking increased concerns that a world armed to the teeth is one that is actually more likely to get involved in devastating wars. Brian Quinn, thank you very much.
Well, this week, the Paris-based International Energy Agency published its annual World Energy Outlook, outlining the global transition away from fossil fuels. While the move to renewables is described as unstoppable, it also warns that it wasn't happening fast enough to stop temperatures from rising above the threshold 1.5 degrees Celsius. Well, to better understand how the world economy is making that move, let's talk to Akshat Rati. He's the author of a new book called Climate Capitalism, Winning the Global Race to Zero Emissions, which tells the story of the people, policies, and technologies that are driving that change. Akshat Rati, thank you for, very much for being with us on People and Profit. Um, in your book, you point to the role that international institutions can play, and you specifically uh, talk about the International Energy Agency, which we just spoke about. What is their, the role they can play? Well, thanks for having me. And it's actually a really good week to talk about the International Energy Agency, given their annual outlook is here now. Uh, and the International Energy Agency was born out of the oil crisis. Uh, in 1973, uh, the world was uh, embargoed by oil from OPEC producers, and the West had to come up with a response. And that response was to try and coordinate among rich developed countries uh, what their challenge would be to take on uh, these oil producing countries. Since then, the International Energy Agency has become a truly energy agency. It's not just focused on oil or just on fossil fuels. Over the past decade, under the leadership of Fatih Birol, who is the character in my book, uh, we find that he has really embraced both the Paris Agreement, which is uh, setting the targets for where the world needs to go on clean energy and on emissions, uh, but also to show other countries, not just the rich developed countries, but countries like India and China and Indonesia, which are big emitters, but also have big opportunities to deploy green energy, how they can do it. Uh, and that transformation for a fossil fuel oriented organization to really be a part of the energy transition globally is a very positive outcome, one that is necessary, one that will have to be uh, followed by other international organizations involved in this transition. In your book, you also have the example of, of, uh, of uh, China. And what do you think China can teach us about how uh, capitalism can be harnessed in the transition to a, to a greener economy? You specifically use the example of the, of the battery sector. Indeed, uh, China as a political body we think of as a communist country, but really it is uh, a capitalistic economy. When it comes to deploying many of the technologies, it uses government instruments to create incentives to drive private investment and private innovation in industries. And, and the two chapters I have focus on electric car batteries, lithium ion batteries, which are now core to the future of uh, transport and electric cars themselves, which now China is the biggest maker of, biggest seller of domestically, but also globally, um, to the f uh, extent where European Union is now worried that there may be cheap Chinese cars uh, flooding the European market. And so what we see is that if you have government direction, clear direction, and a long-term plan for supporting those industries, it is genuinely possible to use private capital to build a world-class industry, one that is not just competitive with uh, other big players, but is the leader and in a way pushes other countries like the European Union or the US to actually compete with China instead.
In your book, there's so many examples of the interplay between the private sector and government regulation uh, in the goal of uh, reaching those climate targets. Do you feel like there's a perfect recipe out there uh, for the right balance of government intervention on one hand and a private sector initiative on the other? And, and what is that recipe if, the, if it does exist? Indeed, it's a, that's a complex question. What I will say is the book is called Climate Capitalism, which is to say, at the core of it, you do need the capitalist engine. You need markets that are regulated by governments, but have direction from governments. Now, how much amount of regulation will enable a successful transition will really depend on the type of political economy you sit in. So here in Europe, where we are, uh, there is clearly much more interest and much more political understanding across the board that climate change is something we must act on. And so governments are giving more direction, not so much subsidies. Whereas in the U.S., there is a political divide. One party doesn't really think about climate change very much. The other party understands the challenge. And so what you're getting in the Inflation Reduction Act is a very much subsidy-driven uh, approach where governments are putting in lots and lots of money to move these industries without actually punishing them for producing emissions, which is something the European Union does with the emission trading scheme. And then in China, you have a much more jingoistic approach where they want to create national champions, where they want to create global companies that will go out and compete and create markets for, for China. India is in a very different sector where it is a much less developed economy. It has a lot of room to grow, a lot of coal uh, in its backyard that it would like to use unless it can build clean energy. So what exact mix will really depend on the po politics of that region. But what is correct is that you need these three combinations. You need people, you need policies, and you need the technologies, all of them to come together in a mix that would work for that region. There's one market or economic concept you outline in the book that kind of explains quite well what capitalism can do in this, in this search to, to, to reduce uh, carbon emissions, for instance. It's the concept of the learning curve. Uh, can you tell us more about this and how this can be particularly beneficial when it comes to developing technology uh, that reduces carbon emissions? So the green technologies that exist today and that are scaling are solar wind batteries. These have all been developed something like in the last 30 to 50 years, it's been a long time developing, but really they have taken off, they have become cheap, they've become mass market only in the past decade. And what happened there is something called the learning curve, which is essentially the idea that engineers, once they start building a unit of something and build not one, two hundreds, but millions of them, by making each of those units, they learn about how to make it better, and thus cheaper. And that's why we're getting such a huge uh, decrease in the price of solar and wind and batteries as their deployment and as their manufacturing has scaled up. Um, and we are going to see that in other forms of technologies. It's going to happen in hydrogen. It will happen in lab-grown meat. It may even happen in uh, sectors that we haven't yet quite um, scaled up. So carbon removal, which is an idea where you draw down carbon dioxide from the air. If we can do that at scale and at a much lower price, it will really change the game for how we're going to tackle climate change. So learning by doing is absolutely crucial to uh, making the energy transition work. And we are seeing those success stories play out and we are benefiting from them right now. Akshat Rati, you're the author of Climate Capitalism, Winning the Global Race to Zero Emissions. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Thanks for having me.
Well, off to Kenya now, where a perhaps surprising solution to food waste and import dependency has emerged. A new generation of entrepreneurs there is using the larvae of black soldier flies to make fertilizer and animal feed. This practice surged during COVID-19 when closed borders meant reduced imports of synthetic fertilizer and is sticking around as the war in Ukraine has sent their prices soaring. Our correspondents, Olivia Bizot and Elodie Cousin, tell us about this cheaper, homegrown alternative. Old banana skin, rotten avocados, moldy passion fruit, Talash Hajbaz collects them all. Every day at Insectipro we get 60, we get 40 to 60 tons of fresh waste. She uses it to feed black soldier fly larvae, which are then transformed into animal feed and fertilizer. So the process kills two flies with one slap. It provides farmers with cheap and green products while chipping away at the 19,000 tons of waste Nairobi produces each day. So you're using a product that would actually end up in dump sites, generating a lot of like carbon gas, a lot of problematic smells and transforming it into something that has value. It's a huge relief for smallholder farmers like John. Since COVID and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the cost of imported fertilizers has soared. So a year ago, he switched to black soldier flies, which sell for around 30 euro cents per kilo. That's half the price of traditional fertilizer. It's helped his wallet, but also his crops, thanks to the larvae's excrement, also known as frass. It has boosted the soil's productivity. The yields have even gone up because uh, the frass mainly supplies the soil with a lot of nitrogen, which is important. The model was pioneered a decade ago in this research center in Nairobi. Around 60,000 farmers across Africa have since been trained here. Most of them are women. The whole objective of this program is to be able to come up with easy to use and accessible technology that will be able to create millions and millions of jobs to our growing population so that they'll be able to find a way of improving their livelihood across the continent. To harvest the full potential of black soldier flies, Isipe has been working with the African Union. Together, they want to ensure environmental and economic security to farmers across the continent. Well, thanks for watching People in Profit. You can watch all of our previous shows on France24.com or listen on the podcast platform of your choice. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us on social media. In the meantime, bye and stay tuned to France 24.